Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of SyrupCast. My name is Daniel Bader and as always, I'm joined by Douglas Soltis who this week is a little bit indisposed. He's here, but he may not be completely here. Tell me about your troubles, Douglas. I'm getting old and closer to death and my body's falling apart. That is uh, the theme of the podcast this week. We're talking about death. Yeah. Um, now, I think we're contractually obligated to begin talking, to begin the podcast talking about basketball, right? So, um, just to give a quick refresher, uh, the Cavs played the Golden State Warriors, the Cleveland Cavaliers, mm-hmm. the Golden State Warriors in the first game of the NBA Finals last night at Oracle Center in San Francisco, and uh, it was a good game. And it went into overtime. Tell us what happened in overtime, Douglas. Simply, LeBron failed to score any Hufflepuffs, leading to a scenario where the snitch was just <laughs> ungraspable. No, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure my back feels slightly better than LeBron James's whole body after shouldering the weight of a city and a team. Um, but yeah, man, it was a great, great game. Just... You know, I think the positive side of things, they went in there on a road game for game one and almost stole it. They steal the next one. They have home court advantage, you know, Uh, and they were able to hang with Golden State literally the entire game until overtime uh, when Kyrie went out. Of course, Kyrie Irving being, you know, limping around like I am doesn't look good. No, it's uh, it's going to be a question of whether the rest of the Cavs can step up if Kyrie is out for the rest of the series, he won't want to be out. I think he'll try to come back, but I'm sure the coach will have something to say about that. Uh, so that was our basketball segment. Thank you everybody for, uh, for tuning in. This has sports been, uh, this has been the syrup cast. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Google IO. So we haven't had a, a cast for a couple of weeks and Google IO came and went, I went and came. No, um, I I went down there and I sat through the actually quite abbreviated keynote um, that had a bunch of sort of less than exciting announcements. Android M, Google Photos, Now on Tap was a big part of its uh, Google Now's expansion. Uh, A few other things that uh, we'll get into, but mostly it was about Android M and Google Photos. as consumer focused um, products and the rest of them were obviously more developer focused given the developer theme of the event. Um, But I guess let's start with Android M because Android is 
always moving along at a pretty fast clip. Uh, did you get a sense of, you know, how Google sort of came into this, Douglas? Do you do you see this strategy that they're that they're embarking on, kind of slowing things down and taking a bit more of an iterative approach to the to the Android strategy? Well, I think we talked about it on the podcast last week. It's like similar to what Apple's doing. Like you, you you've now created all these touch points and you've been building, building, building. Now it's time to make sure that uh, the code works and works well, right? So, you know, M from a certain standpoint is like a even even more of a cleanup than uh, Lollipop was, or in, uh, not enhancement, but um, I guess efficiency is the word that I'm looking for, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're onto something there. I, I know I know that. Um... You know, the, one of the key things that uh, David Burke said, who's the VP of engineering for Android, uh, was that M is more about refinement and experience than it is about new features. So uh, one of the major issues that was addressed was app permissions, the fact that they are now uh, addressing an issue that many Android users have complained about, the fact that you couldn't individually turn off permissions uh, per app yeah. that's being addressed. And then also the the fact that the permission is asked for when needed, not all up front, which is right. uh it's you know it's that's an example of like this is one of those things where okay, th- that's like a a really minor thing, but those are the types of little things that drive people towards one platform or another when it comes to an experience. Um so for them for them to take if um if uh Lollipop was the um, the visual overhaul. In certain ways, this is kind of like that functional overhaul. Similarly, if you want to draw like the iOS seven, iOS eight comparisons, um, right? They made it really, really pretty, and now they're going to make it um, even more functionally kind of simple and useful and things like that. But so, can we talk just a bit about your experience, like just in being there, right? Like. The you know it wasn't one of those like twelve hour keynotes, um, but it was also a keynote where they're going to be like, hey, we're announcing iterative updates and a, a giant photos app. So like, what's the what's the vibe in the room there? So I got there on Tuesday. I had a couple of days before the keynote to do a little shopping, a little vacationing, whatever. Um, San and I thought, Yeah, it was awesome. It was a fantastic trip. Wednesday was really interesting because Google did the keynote access for developers a little differently. They did a uh, first come first serve and they asked developers to line up on Wednesday morning to receive their wristbands for the keynote because there were only 3000 seats in the auditorium and there were far more attendees at the conference itself uh, over 5,000. So when I got to the line at around 9am on Wednesday, there were, a, there were there was a line stretched around the block and onto Minna Street, which is just an enormous, enormous line. There were probably 1,500 people in line. And it showed the sheer enthusiasm for what Google is doing, even though most developers knew that the announcements themselves wouldn't be uh, as uh, groundbreaking as they were last year. I think everybody wants Google to have some... I mean, it's inevitable that even an iOS or sometimes even a Windows phone developer will have to access Google APIs. They have to deal with the Google ecosystem. And an increasing number of Android apps are, you know, 
relying on these underlying Google Play services to make their apps better. So even if it was just to get access to the keynote or to sit in some of the sessions, I spoke to a lot of developers who wanted to be around their peers. They wanted to have access to Google developer um, evangelists to go over the specifics of you know what's new with Android M. And I think from sort of an overall uh, how, how did the event go perspective, Google ran this like the tightest ship I'd ever seen. It was just phenomenal. Uh, everything ran on time. Everything was super organized. They made the Moscone Center into a really warm place to be. They opened up areas that were previously enclosed. They had beanbag chairs all over the place. They had free coffee and drinks whenever and wherever you wanted it. Uh, great food. They made this a really fun event to be at. And I think Google has learned its lesson from the previous three keynotes, at least from my perspective, keep it short, keep it to the point and add value through the developer sessions. So I went to a bunch of developer sessions and found that they didn't really talk about a whole lot of things in the keynote because they wanted to keep them exciting in the developer sessions. Well, yeah. Um, also, if it's if it's that granular type stuff where it's like, we're literally just going to discuss the implementation of this thing that is smoother, or easier, or better, you do not need to keynote that. I know there there's that longstanding tradition of you always love to see someone open up a terminal, type in some code to show it working live. But at the end of the day, you can do that in the breakout sessions with the experts. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. It sounds like, you know, Great, great event for developers, which is what these things normally are uh, or should be, um, and ran well because they were able to focus on the experience of the event as a developer event rather than making sure that they stick the landing on major announcements, at least from like a, a mobile Android perspective, right? Because, you know, not being there, I feel like uh, like two things came about. It's like, okay, uh, everyone's from a consumer perspective is really excited about photos because um, that's that's been that's that's been this thing that would previously tied to uh, Google Plus that people are excited about using and then also concerned about using. And then you know all the crazy stuff is happening within Google, just not tied to Android and all the ATAP stuff, where it's just like you know, hey, oh, here's another you know bajillion dollar industry that we're going to tackle, or here's this futuristic thing we're going to do. Um, and maybe the pure the pure mobile component of that just isn't, you know, it's just like, yeah, we're cleaning it up. We're making it better. The consumer experience is going to be good. And then here's all the futuristic stuff that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, Google Photos was one of the uh, everybody had been expecting, but the finished product was so good that most people didn't really care that it was not exciting in the sense that it didn't have anything uh, fundamentally knew that they didn't already know about. Yeah. Google Photos is super interesting because it has this very kind of obvious role as a curator of all of your photos, right? From from your phone, from your desktop, from anywhere that you've previously taken photos because it has an uploader from your Mac or Windows uh, it, it's constantly backing up your your various Android and iOS devices. But then it uses deep machine learning 
to figure out things about your photos that you didn't even know. And I think that that's what's so impressive about this and so interesting is that Google is taking a very simple idea and giving you additional context. And they're taking uh, what I believe to be the virtues of something like Google Now and adding it to your photo albums or your photo you know, history. For example, when I open up photos for the first time, the, the new assistant feature took me all the way back to 2011 when I first started uploading my photos to Google and gave me all of these amazing collages and amazing GIFs and amazing, um, you know, filtered photos that gave it a little bit of a new look. And normally I would never go to the trouble of doing that myself because I mean, to be honest, I don't really look back at a lot of my photos and, and, and want to change them. I just want to kind of, you know, appreciate what I was doing at the time, but mm -hmm. Given, given these new contexts and these new looks, um, it really has an emotional impact on your photos. And that's kind of the point, you know, going able, being able to filter based on location, uh, based on even on face, you know, even though, and we'll talk about it in a second, but, um, you know, being able to filter it properly is an amazing achievement. Yeah, let's, do you want to talk about that? So like, you know, in, in reading about like the, the coverage um, and then just seeing other stuff on the net, you know, like Google's mandate is two things, you know, firstly that Facebook connect the world and then to organize the world's data. Right. Right. From, from the beginning as a search engine um, to even Gmail, it's all always been about finding really useful ways to organize data and, you know, photo data, is probably the last of the major like data sets that every consumer uses that has been, you know, kind of uh, a hassle to, to deal with, right? We take all these photos, we, they either sit on our device or we upload them somewhere They're but they're just inert. Um, and considering, you know, the extent to which people love visual information, capturing moments, um, having a really compelling product along this line, it could be a huge win for them. Like huge. That said, man, does it wig me out when knowing that Google can um, not only know who I am and everything about me, but uh, literally know who all my friends are by identifying them in photos that I've taken. You know, sure. like that is. Um, and, and, and that's where it gets to, you know, this, this long running conversation I've been having on Twitter with, you know, uh, our fellow compatriots in the tech space, like uh, shout out Sasser Sagan. What's up? It's like, man, really want to try this product. Don't know if I want to, you know, jump off the iceberg and, and fully commit, especially when it comes to levels of like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I don't care. I have nothing to hide. You can have my data, but it's now it's like, yeah, now you're giving Google the ability to like index the time location and facial information of all the people you know just because you took a photo of them or you're in a photo with them that's even when there's no metadata in the photo itself yeah they're just the doing the work yeah totally creepy and impressive part about that processing they're not just indexing the data they're creating a data index through right. the machine learning and their ability to just you know pull stuff together which is like but I mean, okay, so isn't isn't that Google's purpose though? Is to create um, organization out of chaos? I mean, when you search for a term on Google, 
you generally search for something that's extremely broad um, and it attempts to give you the most, I guess, useful results on that first page based on a lot of things it knows about you. For example, your social networks that you're logged into at the time, your search history, your location. I mean, these are things that people find extremely useful. Oh, totally. We're dealing with this. We see this every day, right? Um, I would say two things. Uh, First of all, just because we see this every day in other formats, shout out Ronnie. Oh, that's Chester. Um, Doesn't mean that it's necessarily like doesn't have, isn't problematic, especially without a, uh, you know, a a data bill of rights. Sure. We have around, you know, access to information, privacy, things like that. And then second, you know, Google reads every word that we write and receive in our, in our Gmail accounts, right? They basically have our locations, they have our search history. Like, you know, they have all of that when it comes to the visual component, like, Oh, I can recognize you. There's, I think it's just, um, even if it's really no functionally different, uh, there's an emotional human weight to the fact that they know who I am and they know, like, for me, it's really just like, they can identify people around me, people that I know don't want, um, who are very specific in their privacy and, and, you know, wouldn't want a company knowing something about them just because they're in a photo with me. Like, you know, that was never even shared publicly. That's just sorted and indexed. Um, so it, it just, that emotional thing makes you pause and reconsider the whole construction of, well, Hey, if you want a free app, this is how they work, you know? I mean, I, I, I just like, okay, there's a lot to that. And, and it's, it's sort of interesting to unpack. So first of all, from what I understand, the photos, uh, the face identification feature is not yet available in Canada. So the uh, Google reached out to us afterwards and told us that they are rolling this out just to the U.S. because, um, as they said, it's a new feature and it's not that, it's not complete and they're, you know, as they do with many features, rolling it out in a single market to try, you know, to, to make it better. Yeah. One day to say, because because I activated it in the U S I now have this people, uh, database, this facial database, uh, when I search on Google Mm -hmm. photos. And it's interesting because it's super creepy. (laughs) It's super, super creepy. It crops photos, crops faces, um, really close, even when the photos themselves were taken very far away, the accuracy is incredible. It's it's like creepily incredible, uh, and it it also um, will be able to detect a face when that face is partially hidden. So, for example, uh, I have a friend who works for Engadget. His name's Chris Velasco. Shout out, Chris. Uh, he is hidden in a bunch of photos in this database because he hates having his photo taken. He always tries to hide whenever I take a photo of him. But Google, even from just a portion of his face, was able to detect him in every photo. It's freaking crazy. And that's the thing about the whole conversation about metadata, right? It's like consent goes out the window when you can infer the information from all the other pieces of information that you have. Totally. 
Um, and and, you, and I'm not even trying to take this to uh, like a scary level. It's just just like the practical ramifications of this being out there. I don't think people realize. And Facebook's already does this, right? Like you know, we we uploaded photos, you know, 40 photos from the um, uh, the beta kit event that we threw last week. And Facebook did a really great job of saying that's a face, that's a face, that's a face. It's probably this face, um, but you know, obviously not to the extent that Google's doing it. But it's you know, it's just a scenario where, like, I'm not saying that Google is going to do anything wrong with it, but once the capacity is there, unless unless there is an understanding of what can and cannot be done with information, or what uh, what should or should not be done. You know, do I really want to just sign up to see how the future goes? You know, like what are you consenting okay, so, to? Yeah, it's I. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, for example, the facial recognition thing doesn't give you the option of actually categorizing or naming any of these people. So it's doing this in a way that is less of a database and more of an unfiltered list. Or it's it's a sorted filtered list. Yeah, is that but is that but the presentation layer, or they're they're like I'm sure that they're storing or like or have they talked about? You know, but presumably. So okay, so what's interesting about this is that when I look at this list of people, it's all people that I know. Most of these people would be recognizable to Google on their end, mm-hmm. but there's no names attached to any of these people from a consumer perspective. So when I click on Chris's face, it does come up with you know, 40 odd photos that I've taken of him over the years, but there's no, nowhere in that does it say Chris Velasco and nowhere does it associate that with a, with a Google account where, you know, it, I don't think it would be trivial, but I think it would be within Google's power to associate a name and a profession and potentially a Google profile with every one of these people. Hells yeah. And, Um, And like, to me, that's the most, disruptive and potentially scary part like when i when i click on your face i have photos going all the way back to click on my face bader um you know to like early 2014 when you started with mobile syrup uh you know you're hidden as i said about chris and many of these photos but it identified you but at the same time it relies on me to know who you are right google doesn't prompt me to say who is this person like it does on like facebook does facebook is not asking me to tag you google is not asking me to tag you in any of these photos like facebook does so it's i mean it's it's a privacy violation in so you know in so much as it's it's basically giving you a list of of what it thinks are faces but it could be doing the same thing about arms or feet, right? Like it's just identifying people based on a certain um, yeah, but know, if it, physical. If it, can, if it can know me and it knows the day that you took that and it knows where you took it and say you're just a Google Plus user or you have your email tied in, it can also figure out if, it, if Google wanted to any of that additional information, whether or not they're doing it right now. Second... We oh, know I totally agree with you that both the U.S. and the Canadian government are working to have access to all of this information that basically travels through either country. So right. whether or not Google's doing anything with it or um, is looking to doesn't mean like once it's out there, it's out there, right? Um, 
So, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to say like, well, okay. The, the immediate reaction is one to be like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but again, this isn't a conspiracy. This is like documented, um, you know, what the, the current um, state of, you know, data privacy and public privacy and, and um, security of information um, versus security of states and where the tech is enabling it. Like the tech is always sure. way, way ahead. And right now we're at a point where, um, you know, this stuff is probably more impactful than like crazy drone robots coming to destroy you, right? Like drones are crazy. Wow. But just being able to, just, just, to, to just say, you know, okay, okay, Google, tell me everything about me. Yeah. And it's just a photos app, man. <laughs> like well, that's, it's a it's a photos app, but I mean I mean I'm as usual going to play the devil's advocate. I love this thing. It's like I have nothing to hide and I'm going to be that guy who says I have nothing to hide and therefore this actually helps me quite a lot, right? So, you know, what it's doing is it's indexing my photos in a way that is extremely beneficial to me as somebody who archives who tries to archive, you know, his photo library in a number of services. And I've tried Apple Photos. I've tried Dropbox Carousel. I've tried Flickr. Google Photos makes the most sense to me because it has the most data points. Um, there is an element of creepiness to it, but I guess it's because I have a relationship with Google, the company, that I that I don't mind the sort of privacy uh, disruptions if it's to my benefit now. Yeah. But are you going to, but you're, you're tying and I understand what you're saying, right? Like, so just to, but to talk this through is that your relationship with Google is now creating a situation where I have a relationship with Google through you. No, and we've never had a conversation. Not, we, don't, about, we don't know that. I mean, we don't know that, but like, <laughs> It's presumed. Yeah. So I guess it matters only if Google is sharing that information with other companies or we're using that data from what's inside of the photos app to sell more ads. Like if I'm, I mean, say, say eventually when you're searching for, you know, I want to buy you a birthday present. I think that you would like a new pair of sunglasses, right? So the next time I look up sunglasses, instead of it showing me an ad on the side of Google, it may show your face because it took it from Google Photos and say, hey, Douglas needs a new pair of sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Here's a great pair that would fit on his face. I mean, think about the, think about the, the, the implications for the fact that it can now place ads, not just with what you're searching, but with, you know, and that, your... that's already been happening. Like that happens on Facebook. I feel like Microsoft has already been doing that with Bing where it's like, Hey, your friends really like this. Like they've been already been using people's faces in ads to uh, imply like, you know, you know, 30 of your friends use this store, go check it out. And like, it's a photo of like my buddy, Dave, I'm like, Oh Dave, how did you get on the search engine? Um, and like, I, I get, I get all of this. I get, I get 
I want to use the app too. So I understand where you're coming from. So it's not even like, like a, a devil's advocate kind of role. It's more just like, you know, the fact that you have, um, you know, quote unquote, nothing to hide is I think a irrelevant because supposedly we live in a society where the, the burden on sharing information is on the requirement of that. So no matter what you're doing, you know, having something to hide or nothing to hide isn't the, the, deciding factor for information being shared. Uh, second, when, when having nothing to hide changes from like, I don't have stolen cash in my mattress in my house to, I can infer and know everything about you just by having access to this data. What is hide? Like, you know. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What if it's just something simple as like, hey, remember that day where we told our boss, Ian Hardy, we were uh, going to a meeting with some company and we totally went to Kensington and just got loaded with fellow tech writers. And we took a photo that day and uh, people are tagged in that photo and it has the date and the location and you can know that you weren't where you said you were going to be that day. Like... you know, hiding isn't a matter of, and that, that, that was a hypothetical, by the way, we have never done that. Yeah, sure. Um, but like th- th- those types of situations where like, you don't even know the types of things that can be inferred and therefore must be hidden or not, because this isn't like a binary privacy gateway anymore. It isn't, it isn't a search warrant into your car or your home or anything. It's like, there's a digital life out there. And once that box opens, like, it's not even about, closing it again it's about just you know what google does mining and sorting the information that's there Um, right but that's been done i mean i'm failing to see a difference between photos other than what you already described how there's an emotional uh impact and an an emotional association with personal photos over what google has been doing on an opt-in basis for years they've been mining your data every time you've made a search every time you open an, an email Totally, totally. I, I think I think maybe that the the larger point is that there really is no difference. This is just another. It's like either another version of that, which I am having a more emotional reaction to because it is like, oh man, it's your photos. It's your. It's it's just people. It's just people and places and times. Things that are very tangible in a way that amorphous. Like, oh, I, I've never said anything about Obama in my emails. I'm totally cool. Like, it's it's just more. You can, you can grasp onto the idea of that a little bit more deeply. But then also, hey, this is a very visible example of how good they are at this in ways yeah. that like showing an ad um, on the side of your search window, like this is much more impressive <laughs> and therefore indicates a level of sophistication and capability maybe beyond ad placement. So I, you know, I'm not saying that this is like a new or different thing. I'm just saying like, man, did it, um, kick off a, a conversation in in my own head and with others about, you know, do we really, yeah, like what are we what are we signing up for? 
And that's what Apple's argument against companies like Google continues to be. And that's why Tim Cook took a, such a strong stance against this when he spoke uh, at a, a he, he spoke at a nonprofit uh, at a gala um, around privacy and security last week where he he didn't single out Google itself, but he singled out companies that mine data mm-hmm. uh, like Google um, to its own benefit, where the customer is the, uh, you know, is, is the product. And, um, and I think that it speaks to the fact that, you know, Apple tries to get by on delivering what it calls secure end-to-end secure internet services, but it continues to lag as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the second it attempts, to, I mean, there's so many rumors about what's going to happen next week at WWDC. It's going to release a Google, a Google now competitor. Uh, you know, there's going to be, Apple has no choice, but to take on a lot more of this machine learning type um, stuff in order to keep up with Google. But the problem is that when Apple says it never sells your data, it never, it tries to keep your data secure um it just has a lot less data period of of its users right um and when it says like okay it's storing your contacts your photos uh your your calendar on icloud it's essentially just a repository right it's a dumb pipe it's a dumb bucket that carriers are supposed to be dumb pipes for the internet the problem is that carriers are finding that they're being squeezed by being pushed into that role because as anything uh when you become a dumb pipe you essentially are becoming a commodity apple's at an advantage because its profit isn't made on services so it's not really at a risk of becoming commoditized in that way but as a result there's less incentive for apple to innovate on the services side because that isn't their goal their goal is to sell hardware and use those internet services as a way to incentivize the sale of that hardware, but it's well, never, it, yeah. And a lot of purpose, a lot of Apple's software strength comes from third parties because we all use their hardware, right? Correct. Um, so the, the developer tools are really what it comes down to. But um, I was talking about this with Eric Lehman yesterday on, on fresh fruit. Why then does Apple on one hand deny that it's, um, doing what Google's doing by mining data and yet allow Google's software on its app store to do the same thing. I mean, of course, it's within the terms and conditions of its app store, but essentially it's 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 saying one thing on one hand and then going back on, on its word on another. Well, because it, uh, it can't not. It has to. And of course it can. It could, it could specify that any app that sends data to third-party advertisers or any app that uh, has connections to Google's ad network is banned. I mean, it could do that if it really wanted to. Yeah, and then there were, there were a lot of people going over to Android just be, so they could use Gmail properly. Quote, well, that unquote, was, I mean, that was once Gmail's, that was once Android's biggest claim to fame is that it worked better with Google services. Yeah. But since Google started taking a more... Uh, you know, vested interest in iOS as a way to expand its own services. Some people have argued that the iPhone is actually a better way to communicate with Google than an Android. Well, so, so um, 
but the time in which Apple could have like prevented that, like there's just too much momentum in terms of, yeah, they're just beyond the, the time where they could really cut that back. Um, right. But then they can't say that they're 100% for its users privacy. They're basically, they're basically hedging it by saying that as long as the user is within the iCloud network, as long as you're John Gruber, who doesn't use any Google services, shout outs Gruber, then you know your stuff is safe. Well, but 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 it's more just like we're not gonna we're not gonna do this to our customers, and they have the choice to do that if they want to, but they should be aware we're not limiting. You know, you can very much be like you could live off of, you know, for the for the longest time I was a mail user, like. It it is it's been a slow slow addition of Google services to um, my iOS world. Like you don't have you can live totally outside of that. Like app for whatever the value of the of um, each individual service, Apple still provides all the little check boxes that anyone else does. Sure, um, I mean you could you could live in in mail. You could live on iCloud.com as your email. You could live on Apple Maps. You could live on Reminders. You could yeah. live, um, you know, those things exist, obviously, only within the Apple ecosystem. The be- the benefit and beauty of Google is that it does allow you to do these things cross-platform for the most part. Mm-hmm. But also that the, the core products are just better products in many ways. I mean, I'm constantly finding that the hardware portion uh, for me, is what keeps me on iPhone, and then the software and services portion is now almost equally distributed between Google and Microsoft. Since Microsoft purchased Wonderlist, mm-hmm. they purchased Sunrise, they purchased Accompli. I use all three of those services on my iPhone, and I use Sunrise synced with my Google Calendar. You know what I'm saying? Like there's totally no. Yeah. And, and Apple has never really been like, what was the last piece of like pure software that Apple really made as a, as a profit making mechanism? Well, I, like, I, the I closest don't thing they... is iTunes. And even then that was directly connected to hardware. Like they've never been a services company. All of their iOS services are still come from that traditional, I'm an OS manufacturer, so we need, you know, you need a note app and you need a calendar app. And like, you know, we live in a world like from that 90s reality of like the the platform provider provided like 80% of the core software for the platform. Right. It was bundled together. And then you could get the internet and a a few third party applications. Whereas now is like, the OSs are really just runtimes for third-party applications in the web. Yeah, but that's not true. I mean, install, like, buy a brand new iPhone, and you have all of your iWork apps pre-installed. You could, you can create... Oh, totally. You know, you but, create- but what are the apps that people, that the average person uses every day? Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, Slack. Like, all of those things are no longer... Um, OS provider level applications. Like, yes, no, they're, they're Apple not. Still they're... provides great, like I work, but those are the things that, you know, in the, in the PC 
prior to the post PC world were the software that people used every day. And now there's actually real consumer software that people do use every day. And those are made by, you know, the web 2.0 companies essentially. Well, that's, I mean, that's not entirely true. Google apps has a pretty significant market share in the, in the enterprise world. Um, and I think Google is increasingly trying to figure out its place as both a consumer company and a business company. Uh, Apple too has partnered with IBM to make its services. You know, IBM is, is making the software. I mean, Apple knows where its strengths lie and it's in the hardware. It's a vertically integrated company. Mm -hmm. It makes the hardware on top and then allows third party developers to add to that, um, to that core experience. No, no, no. I know, Google... I know. I'm just saying like, so like if you had had, uh, if you were using a MacBook in uh, the early, in the nineties or the early two thousands, let's say your updating your OS was huge because predominantly all the things that you were using uh, with that MacBook were features and software coming with the, the, the OS bundled in. Right, like your your mail client, your calendar, um, your uh, content editing suite, whether that's uh, Word documents, PowerPoint presentations, video, all of that came bundled with an OS because the OS, like it was, you know, functions were tied to the operating system. And then at a certain right. point, the web came in, and you you were doing a lot of those things that were traditionally like applications you'd click on on your desktop. You're just doing in the browser, and in the mobile space you know, a lot of those applications that you use on a daily level are provided by, you know, through an app store, they don't come with, you know, iOS. And, and, and they while do there come are... with Google, I mean, like, say you live in the Google ecosystem, you still download those apps through the iOS app store. Those are third party apps. But those are core Google services that come bundled on every Android phone, they have to as part of the agreement with, with OEMs. Totally. Um, but you're still, even on Android, you're still using Facebook, Twitter, like th those types of things that, you know, if, if, if this were the nineties, like if the mobile tech had come out in the nineties, you would have like, and you know, we had this with like MSN chat and things like that. And, um, what was that old, uh, chat app that Apple had built that like still works with iMessage, but no one's used it for 20 years, but it would have been like, Microsoft book and like every, every platform provider would have done their version of every type of experience that you need. And now not only do they leave it up to third party manufacturers or like software developers, but then their services aren't even tied to their platforms anymore. Yeah. But you're, you're forgetting that Facebook tried that and failed. Facebook yeah. tried to integrate into a smartphone with, you know, HTC on Android totally. and failed miserably and then tried again uh, with Facebook home and failed miserably. And now they're trying to uh, more surreptitiously insert itself into Android and to a lesser extent iPhone by, I guess, creating a platform within a platform. So Facebook has become this ubiquitous way for developers to create experiences within other apps. So you have Giphy creating an, a third-party iOS app that doesn't work on its own, has to only work within Facebook's Messenger app. But Facebook Messenger is still an app that you download. Totally. And That's you can 
And that's my point. Like Facebook was trying to create a world in which they were the new Microsoft. And everyone was like, nope, we don't want that. We like the internet and third-party apps and things. So, you know, version 2 point, like plan B is to buy all the independent apps that people use and then just be the, the connection portal to all those things, which again is about the data, not the, the front end experience. But they, they were trying to like make, you're right, Facebook phones with Facebook this, Facebook that. And then they realized it was just easier to just buy the things that people use, make sure Facebook Connect is in it, own all the information, and then monetize it through, through ads. Yeah, but Microsoft is essentially doing what Facebook decided to do, right? Like yeah. Facebook started buying up smaller startups and integrating it loosely into its ecosystem, like, I, um, like Instagram, like WhatsApp. Um, and Microsoft, with, you know, with its recent purchases, has been doing essentially the same thing. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, the Compli quite quickly turned into Outlook for mobile, but Outlook for mobile is still a very independent app compared to Outlook for desktop and tablets. I don't see Sunrise or Wonderlist disappearing as brands anytime soon and in, in totally. integrated. Yeah, you know, other than kind of opening their APIs and more, more assertively integrating into the core Microsoft ecosystem. But Facebook's got this distinct advantage: they are platform agnostic. They are a web service that happens to be really good at making mobile apps. And, you know, Google has decided that in order for its services to proliferate, it needs to be the same kind of company. Mm -hmm. So it can't distinguish between iOS and Android anymore. Even though it owns Android, it's still very much a services company that relies primarily on ads to, uh, and, 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 you know, big data to be successful. Totally. I completely agree. When I was using Microsoft in that example, I'm, I'm thinking of the classic Gates, Balmer era Microsoft. And you're totally yeah, right, right that Microsoft has learned its lesson uh, in a way that, say, BlackBerry didn't and is trying to be a distributed kind of uh, Google company. Um, you know, Facebook wanted Facebook wanted the Internet to be basically like, oh, I'm going to sign into the Internet. And that would just be Facebook.com. And you would everyone would live inside Facebook and be a wonderful happy blue place and they're twisting their strategy to reflect the actual desires of current users. And I'm sure Apple would very much like um, the only applications or things that you would do on its um, hardware would be either things that it's built or third party developers that don't in any way compete with it. But we're, we're too far in the stage of the game for them to deny the other major services providers. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. I think Apple has come to terms with the fact that it... So I think we have to distinguish between certain kinds of consumers, right? You and I will go out into the App Store and we'll seek out great experiences. We'll follow the blogs and figure out what's best and replace Only our apps. go where no one ones. has gone before. Right. Like we, you know, I'm, I go to Product Hunt every day for a reason. Um, shout out Product Hunt to So, you know, I... I think that, you know, people like my fiance who loathe updating apps, she doesn't update her OS. She doesn't seek out new experiences unless I explicitly say, hey, this is a better version of the thing that you're currently using. Mm -hmm. And I think that Apple builds those services into its OS because it knows, and it probably has a lot of data to back this up, that 
unless you're going into an iPhone or an iPad using Google Docs or Sheets or Slides, you know, numbers and no and whatever uh, slides. I don't know what the names of the Apple services are. Um, are are going to be just fine, right? And you know, every year Apple says, "Hey, we updated uh, our iWork suite to be more compatible with current standards, and it's more beautiful." And blah blah blah. Totally. But it knows that the people using those are not using them because they're the best. It's because they're the path of least resistance. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, if you're going to release an OS, it has to have some functionality to it. Otherwise, what is? It's just an app launcher. It's just like a boot ROM to the internet, right? I totally agree. But there, there was a time when a company like Microsoft could say to like to 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 mess with its competitors, like we're not we're not bringing Outlook to Mac. No, you'll never get Outlook. What you will get is a really crappy third party product that we bought, which is purple and ugly, called Entourage, which will always be worse than Outlook, so that we can say we support this platform. But really, we want you buying PCs because that's where we make our money. Well, that, I mean, that world was, doesn't exist anymore. It was a matter of being like, "Hey, we we want to support Outlook as a, you know, in a, in a very kind of high level in the sense that we want to support Active Sync. We we want to pay very little to give you Exchange support uh, without paying Microsoft a boatload of money to actually bundle the full you know Office experience, and that's why." Um, Microsoft's had so much success with Office 365 because yeah. it's basically a subscription service. Yeah, well, because once yeah, because once their revenue came from not using the services that were tied to their OS, but just paying for their services that people wanted, it became their incentive to make great services live everywhere. So you yeah. sign up, right? Um, and and that's that's that shift. Um, but so drawing it all the way back to kind of like Google and Apple now, I think you're you're totally right where. You know, like let's let's take a look at uh, I/O versus what WWDC should be next week. So, hmm, you have uh, Android M, which is from the mobile side. Yeah, we're just cleaning it up, making some things better. Uh, there's a new photo of that. Actually, a really cool feature, though. Um, I don't know if you so now on tap is is probably the most exciting feature of of Android M that nobody can use right now because it's not integrated into the M Developer Preview. But essentially, it's giving you context about the the content in your app. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can highlight a certain word or a certain phrase in your app and get these plants into other apps or into other units, you know, Google's knowledge graph. And to me, that's where Google's strengths lie. Totally. And it's something that Amazon's been doing as well, right? With its... Uh... In the Prime service, you can kind of call up similar information, but this will be for everything, right? Like, yeah, and I mean, they're doing that with Alexa. Um, what, what's it called? The Well, it looks like uh, my computer decided to uh, take a bit of a, a break during the podcast. So we lost the GarageBand audio, which we had been, uh, at least on my end. So unfortunately, the audio you're listening to is is the Hangouts audio. That's not as high quality. My apologies for that. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's wrap it up because I think, um, you know, Google is listening and they're tired of us talking about them in this manner. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, that's really what it comes down to. Um, what, what's going to happen tomorrow or next week at WWDC, which you can find all the details on at mobile Uh, is that 
Apple is also in a very similar position to Google. It's trying to make these small iterative changes. The one thing that you'll you'll notice about iOS 9 from what I'm hearing is it's going to be a lot more stable. It's going to work a lot better on older devices than iOS 8 did. Uh, it's probably going to put a lot of the infrastructure in place for uh, expansion of uh, Apple Pay. So mm-hmm. what we're hearing is that Apple Pay is going to debut in the fall in Canada. Yeah. Um, and that's likely to not be announced, right? Like they'll do the Apple Pay announcement when it happens, but the infrastructure will be in iOS 9, right? My guess is that they will say something about international expansion without specifying any other countries. Okay. They're not going to just leave the Apple Pay API on its like by itself. So they'll say, blah, 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 we've improved Apple Pay in this way. Um, you know, watch later this year for more information or whatever. And I'm guessing that Apple Pay will come to Canada with the debut of the next iPhone. Um, and map inform- uh, transit information in the Apple Maps app, which nobody really cares about. And I also think that there will be um, just an emphasis on how apps work better together. I think the extensions SDK introduced some amazing uh, desktop-like experiences in iOS 8 while keeping the sandbox intact. And I think that we'll see a lot more from the on the continuity side, on uh, the handoff side, on the extension yeah. side. Health to make kit, it, home kit, all those, all the kits. Yeah, the I mean, home home. Mike Mark Gurman from Nine to Five Mac has said will be a, a standalone app introduced in iOS nine, similar to uh, health. And home kit devices have already hit the market, so we'll see something happen for sure. Whether or not it'll be as impactful as Apple says it will, who knows? The other thing that they will announce that we probably won't get immediately, at least, is uh, Apple Music, which is what they've done with Beats and, and basically just revamped it. Uh, we don't know whether it'll debut on Android. If, if, it, if it does, it'll be the first Apple-built product that debuted on Android. But, I, I mean, they really have no incentive to do that. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a little I'm a trepidatious about, about WWDC. It's, you know, it's a big, big deal for Apple developers um, but this year, you know, we may not get the Apple TV that everybody's been promised, uh, because it, you know, they, they, they've been delaying. I don't think the it's SD- happening, man. I don't like, I think if you can't get the content, it doesn't matter how, how nice of a TV it is. Oh, no, no, it's not a, I don't think it's a television. I mean, I'm talking about the next generation Apple TV set, bo- set top box. Um, that has been rumored to debut, but they couldn't get the deals in place with the licensing, the licensees, um, or licensors, they um, couldn't get the SDK out in time. So I, I don't know. Uh, WWDC may be a bit more subdued this year. Well, so look at it this way: like uh, Google I/O, uh, similar to WWDC from a mobile perspective of cleanup, a few specific features, uh, enhancements to services, but nothing crazy. And then on the other side, ATAP building crazy next gen you know connected clothing vr everything right like all these all these crazy things but apple doesn't have that other side of its company that's working on stuff like that well they do they just don't have it publicly you can bet your ass that they have something internally um you know that's that's like a tap i just 
I agree oh, yeah, with but that. At an announceable level, are they doing anything with connected clothing? No. No, no, no. I mean, they're they're a much more conservative company in that regard. Um, they're more careful about not announcing beta products. They want to, when they announce something, it's integrated into their existing hardware platform. Yeah, shipping right. next week kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's like, we'll, we're going to get a preview of the Apple Watch native SDK, and that should be a big deal for developers. But, you know, that's another thing that, you know, we'll have to, to wait and see because, um, you know, it's a matter of storage. It's a matter of still, even though they'll be native on the on the watch, will they still be limited by Bluetooth? I mean, these things are all, um, while iOS is very mature right now, uh, watch kit is not. And, you know, that's just another another issue for developers to tackle. So we'll be back here next week and we'll we'll take a look at all the announcements um, and I, I really like maybe next week we can talk a little bit more about ATAP and what they're doing with uh, with Project Soli and Project Jacquard because I got to demo those those um, early 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 hardware uh, products and they're just amazing especially Project Jacquard mm-hmm. um, you know the, the even though conductive materials in clothing is not a new thing the way that it's been integrated into uh, into this. Uh, sort of um, being industrialized is amazing yeah. and the well, fact that they're working with levi's is is just crazy makes makes your butt happy well i hope your butt stays happy and your back feels better uh we will be back next week with another episode of syracast thank you so much for listening and uh have a great week everybody shout out to lebron Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.